Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace offers beautiful designs with over 20 highly customizable templates for you to choose from, and you'll have all the style options you need to create a unique website for yourself or your business. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you need some help, Squarespace has an amazing support team available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They have over 70 employees on the customer care team based in New York City, and their office has been nicknamed the Care Bear Lair. How do you like that? Packages start at just $8 a month and include a free domain if you sign up for a year. Also, every single website design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website so your content will look great on every device, every time. Start a trial right now. No credit card required and start building your website. Just visit squarespace.com and when you sign up at Squarespace, be sure to use the offer code OTHER8. Once again, the offer code is OTHER8. You get 10% off and you show your support for this podcast. Do this, you guys. Check it out. It's a great deal. It's an amazing, simple, cost-effective way to build your web presence. Squarespace, it's everything you need to create an exceptional website. So go and create one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is fundamentally bookish in nature. This is the content you have chosen to consume. Thank you for being here. Molly Ringwald is my guest today. And uh, for anyone out there who might be wondering, yes, it is that Molly Ringwald. Uh, she's a true hyphenate. 
She's an actor, of course, in television and film and on stage. We all know that. She also makes music, and uh, she has a new album out, a jazz album called Except Sometimes that is now available. And she has written a best-selling novel called When It Happens to You. It's a novel in stories, now out in paperback from It Books, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. So uh, she's got a lot going on, and uh, there's lots to talk about, and it was very fun to have her on the program and to get a chance to meet her. Um, you know, I grew up watching those movies. So many of us did. And uh, I'll, I'll admit it, it was a little bit surreal to be sitting across from her all these years later and talking to her about her book and about her life and about her work and all these uh, various media. And uh, I should also mention that, uh, and I did not mention this to her, um, thankfully, which you're about to understand. But as a young boy of, say, 10 or 11 years old, I was repeatedly told that I was reminiscent of Anthony Michael Hall circa 16 Candles. Like mid-80s. I can't tell you how many times I heard that as a kid. Uh, I guess I sort of vaguely resembled him. I'm not sure if I, you know, if I really saw it, but everyone said that. And, I, you know, I guess there was something about my essence or my delivery or my coloring that reminded people of him. Uh, but, you know, as a young child, when people tell you repeatedly that you remind them of someone famous, you, know, you tend to internalize it a little bit. And this was certainly the case for me. And I, I guess I always felt like, uh, you know, okay, so this is my appeal. This is what people are telling me. This is what they're picking up. And of course, like Anthony Michael Hall played the geek <laughs> in pretty much every movie he made uh, during that time period. And, you know, that had a certain impact on my headspace and my overall self-concept. And, you know, to be fair, he was like the cool geek. <laughs> he was the lovable loser. But he was still the geek in the end. He was not Jake Ryan. He was Farmer Ted. And so, you know, in prepping for this interview uh, with Molly, you know, it was, it was kind of labor-intensive. I think I did more preparation than I usually do, uh, you know, because I didn't want to screw it up. I felt a little pressure. I wanted to do a good job. And I think I probably overthought it a little bit, as is my tendency. So uh, with that in mind, like shortly before she arrived for the interview, I found myself like digging through my closet, looking at old photographs of myself uh, from childhood. <laughs> and I, I found one from this particular period in the mid-1980s, like some school photo. And, uh, you know, it's, it's when I was kind of at my, my peak farmer Tedness, if you will. Like my hair and, you know, the whole thing, my braces. And my plan uh, was to show this photograph to Molly uh, upon her arrival as a way of uh, breaking the ice. <laughs> I literally had this scripted in my head. It was an entire presentation. Uh, but it was going to be entirely seamless and natural, and this was going to be my opening gambit. 
But, uh, but then as soon as she arrived and we started talking and hanging out, you know, everything changed. Everything became fluid and spontaneous and uh, human in the way that they tend to. And, uh, you know, it quickly occurred to me uh, internally that I, I could not bust out this photo. It would be a terrible idea and, and possibly uh, and probably like a little weird. You know, to be like, oh, hey, welcome. Uh, I used to look like Farmer Ted. <laughs> Do you want to see a picture? Uh, can you imagine that? I, like, I'm thinking it might have gone badly. And uh, I'm very glad that I was able to uh, show some good judgment and exercise some restraint, at least right there in the moment. You know, of course, I'm talking about it now after the fact, but I, I think it merits mentioning, A, because it's kind of funny, and uh, B, because I spent an inordinate amount of mental energy rehearsing uh, this moment that, by the grace of God, never actually happened. And, uh, of course, Molly made it easy on me once things got rolling. She was delightful, and I think we had a really good talk. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, uh, without any further ado, let's get to it. This is my conversation with Molly Ringwald, and her best-selling novel and stories, once again, is called When It Happens to You. Well, I think when I was 16 years old, I never imagined that I would be sitting somewhere and having someone interview me about my novel. So you I didn't think, you didn't have an inkling of that. Uh, well, I always wrote, but I never thought that I would necessarily publish. Or I thought at the time that if I ever did, I would do it under a pen name or something like that. If it ever happened, so you had the impulse. I definitely had the impulse, and, and I was writing all the time. I mean, it was something that I did all the time, but once I became focused on acting, I sort of did that to the exclusion of everything else, including singing. Right. Uh, and then you just get to a certain age where you think, you know, why am I doing that? Why am I not doing everything that I can possibly do that's interesting to me? Well, but I know, I think it takes some courage because I think like when you, especially if you have like a public persona and people have a certain fixed idea of who you are mm -hmm. and then... You decide, like, I'm going to do this, too. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes people go, well, wait a minute. We can't accept you. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. Like, I think you have to have a certain confidence and a certain willingness to accept some abuse. I mean, have you, have you felt that at all? Um, surprisingly, I feel like the literary community has been incredibly um, encouraging and open to me. Um, but I, I also I feel like it's, it's, it's a question of whether or not you can write, too. I mean... Yeah, there's certain people who approach my writing with their arms folded and they make up their mind before they even, you know, read a word. Um, and, and I've had people, even though I don't read reviews, <laughs> I have you my don't. husband read them. No, I don't read reviews um, of anything that I do, including acting and singing. I stopped reading reviews when I was 19 years old. 
Wow. But that's, I think that's actually healthy, but very difficult. I think a lot of people <laughs> say they don't want to do it, but they can't resist. You know, it is surprisingly easy. I, I think at first it was difficult. I did it when I was, I was doing a heart and foot play uh, in, in New York off Broadway. And I remember reading this review that Frank Rich wrote where he called me um, uh, fiercely competent, something like that. Um, and, and I found it so hurtful. And so, I mean, it just, it seemed like such like fiercely a fiercely competent. Yeah. Fiercely competent. That sounds it, sort of nice. <laughs> kind of. I mean, it sounds like a, to me, it, it, it sounds like a backhanded compliment. It's, it's not saying you're extraordinary or anything. I mean, he, he was in love with my co-star, um, and which, I mean, my, I had a fantastic co-star and he was amazing and it was a better part, you know, who was the co-star? Uh, his name is Don Bloomfield. Okay. Um, and it was kind of a love letter to, to him and to his performance and, I was fiercely competent <laughs> and, you know, having just come off these movies, you know, pretty in pink had already come out and I may or may not have already been on the cover of time. You know, I, it was, it was a moment to take me down. Right. Um, and, and I think around the same time there was another reviewer, um, John Simon, who, who called me, um, like a husband or something like that, like at, at age 19, <laughs> you know, and, and I found it really difficult to go on stage. Um, it, it, I found them completely unhelpful. And I thought, why am I reading these reviews? Because the, the great reviews are never great enough. And the bad reviews make me feel insecure. And, uh, so I just thought, okay, I'm just never going to read a review again. And that's it. And at first it was kind of difficult, especially since when you, when you start doing a play and after opening night and you get the reviews and everybody wants to talk about them and put them up on the bulletin board and all of that stuff. And I, and it was really difficult at first and now it isn't difficult at all. Well, I was going to say, but what about like friends and family coming to you and being like, Hey, did you read what that asshole wrote about? Yes. You, you get that? You have to tell people like, please don't. I do. But the, the hardest thing, actually, it's not hard for people to, um, to not share the bad reviews because people generally don't, I mean, unless you're, that kind of person, <laughs> generally normal, good, big hearted people don't want to share bad reviews, but, uh, but they do want to share good reviews. And that's the hardest thing to get people to understand that I don't want to read any reviews. Well, see, that's the thing that I think is impressive, uh, in terms of self-discipline, because the truth is everybody likes to read something nice about themselves. It yeah. feels, it feels good Yeah. when someone says, the, the, you know, the more gushing, the better. <laughs> but I think like the, the critical insight, and it sounds like this is what you're saying is that, um, whether it's really good or it's really bad, neither is true. Yeah. And so you have to kind of like, it takes discipline to realize both. Or it's just a matter of opinion. I mean, all, I think all art is subjective and, you know, my writing is going to speak to one person and it's not going to speak to somebody else at all. And, uh, you know, it just, it doesn't, I don't find it helpful to have somebody who, you know, my book wasn't written for them or my style doesn't speak to them, you know, write a review and criticize me for a book that they don't like. They don't like that particular style, you know? Um, so I, I greatly value the opinion of my friends and, you know, people that I, you know, I actively seek. I, I always give my writing to a, to a small group of people and, and ask them to be very brutal with me. Uh, so it's not like I'm not open to criticism. I'm just, I like to be selective about who I, who I ask. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah. And I, you know, one of the things about uh, criticism, whether it's film criticism or any, any kind of art criticism, uh, one of the things that I don't think gets talked about is, uh, 
context for the reviewer. Like, I always think when I'm reading a really shitty movie review, for example, mm -hmm. like, what kind of mood was the person in yeah. the day they saw the movie? Because, like, oh, I, can, yeah. I can go see a movie in the theater and I can be really tired mm -hmm. or I can just be in the wrong mood yeah. and I can see it and be like, eh. And then, like, I'll watch it again on cable, like, a year later and be like, what was I thinking? That was yeah. wonderful. Or, yeah. you know, or, or vice versa. And so, you know, it's just a tricky thing. Yeah. And, and I also find, uh, you know, I don't, I don't feel like everyone necessarily can review or should review. Um, you know, I, I like reading film criticism and, you know, for, for people that can actually do it. I mean, I really do think that it's, um, I don't know if, if I would say it's an art well, I guess I would. I mean, it's definitely a skill sure. um, that not everybody has. Uh, and, and I also just feel like there's just so much envy too, you know, because a lot of writers um, are reviewers or a lot of reviewers, let's say, are writers. And right. so you, you're getting that. And then, and then on top of it, I have the, the whole, you know, oh, it's an actress, it's an actor. And I've had uh, reviewers. And by the way, even though I don't read reviews, I have somebody close to me, which, you know, Ponyo, my husband who does read them and he'll just give me a sort of a general, Oh, thumbs up, thumbs down. Oh, this review, they were more interested in talking about your films than about your writing. You know, so I kind of know sort of generally, you know, what's out there. So I, so I don't feel like I'm completely in the dark. Right. Um, but I just don't sit and, and read it myself. You and, know, just enough to be healthy. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully that's <laughs> to, the idea. <laughs> to not drive yourself completely nuts. Yes. So, uh, prepping for this interview. Um, I think I did more prep for this than I normally do. You know, I, I felt like, why is that? I, you know, it's Mo Molly Ringwald is going to be sitting here. <laughs> I, I confess to some of that, you know, cause oh, okay. generationally those movies were yeah. part of my childhood of as they were for so many people who probably tell you this all the time. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I noticed in prepping for this is the fact that when I sat down, I was like, I don't know very much about her mm. other than her work. And when I think about like young starlets of contemporary times, like you almost know the personal stuff before you know the work. Mm -hmm. Like I know it's like, oh my God, I can't believe um, K-Stu cheated on our pet. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, all the kind of like tabloidy yeah. stuff. And like yeah. what, I, what I picked up is that you throughout your career have managed to not have that happen to you. Maybe it did. And I missed it because I was younger and not maybe as engaged as I am with media now. And I know the world is different, yeah. but you've managed to kind of just do the work and live a life and not be in tabloids or not let like, I've, people... I've tried. I mean, that, that was a choice that I made, um, pretty, when I was pretty young. I mean, I was never really interested in, um, you know, clubbing and going out and so you didn't do any of that paparazzi. I did a very, very small amount of it um, because I sort of, at a, at a certain point, I just felt like it was something that I should do, you know? <laughs> so I, I would go out to clubs and, and stand there, you know, in, with really loud music and everyone getting drunk and thinking, why am I doing this? It, it, it just was never really something that, that appealed to me. You know, I always wanted to be, um, you know, at, at a dinner party or, you know, <laughs> with friends, you know, sitting around, you know, drinking coffee and, and smoking. I used to smoke uh, and, and talk about things that were interesting to me, you know, talk about books and travel and places that I wanted to go. And that, that was just always the person that I was. And I don't know exactly why I'm that way. Um, well, but, what about like family stuff? Cause like, I mean, I've now, I've now read and prepping you're from Sacramento, mm -hmm. which I did not know. <laughs> um, did you come and did you come from 
like you must have pretty good family grounding. I think so. I I come from um, I do come from Sacramento. My family moved to Los Angeles when I was ten. Uh, my father's a jazz musician, which is how I have that that jazz connection. Um, my mom was a stay at home mom, but but very uh, artistic, and and art was really even though we kind of lived a a sort of typical suburban um, kind of normal background. It was always a little bit different because my dad was a musician and also he's blind. Um, so my mom did all the driving like lifelong blind. Yeah. Like blind, you know, legally blind when he was born and then he lost his vision entirely. Um, by the time he was, I think 10 or 11, you know, he went to the blind school in Berkeley and, you know, reads Braille and yeah, he's totally blind. Um, so everything was just a little bit different and he, he, my parents raised their kids on a musician's salary, which is not an easy thing to do. Right. Uh, so for me, art was always, it wasn't just something that you did as a hobby. It was something that was incredibly important because, you know, it, you, you could raise a family as, you know, well, it being was real. an artist. It's not an mm-hmm. abstraction. I think for anybody, I mean, it's so easy for it to fall into the realm of abstraction for people mm-hmm. who aren't actively doing it. Yeah. And I think it's kind of fortunate, you know, as a young person who had artistic inclinations to have that as an example. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I feel, I feel really fortunate. My, my parents have always been very supportive of me in all of my artistic endeavors. I think they thought that I was really going to grow up and and pursue music. They thought that that was, that was what I was going to do. So you were singing from a young age? Yeah. From, it was the first thing I did. It was pretty much pre-verbal perfect like you had pitch and they could tell oh yeah yeah i um because i have a brother and a sister who don't have musical ability and so i was the last child and my mom was the one that noticed because i would sing to the animals when everyone else was in school and she also noticed that i would um make up before i could talk i would make up songs and then i would repeat them um you know i would just which which is very musical. I would find a melody and and like it, and then just work on it and work on it. So she was the one that told my dad, and then I started working with my dad um, when I was about three and a half. What, and what does that mean, working with him? Like, just- well, I he would teach me songs and you know check out. He I think initially he was just trying to figure out actually whether or not I could sing. So figuring out pitch, you know, he would sing something or play something on the piano, and I would repeat it. And he can sing too. My dad. Oh yeah, he's a great singer. He's a pianist and a singer and. Uh, and has always had a jazz band for, you know, as long as I can remember. So I started working with him and performing with his jazz band when I was uh, three and a half. And, uh, and then around the same time, everyone in my family, we did uh, community theater and uh, dance. And, uh, you know, we were on a swimming team. We were, you know, we had a lot of extracurricular activities. Uh, and, then, and then gradually the, uh, the acting sort of became more important to me. So did you, I mean, did you, I mean, obviously your parents, when you're at that age have to be involved, but Mm -hmm. were you asking like, I want to go on auditions or how did that, how did you make the transition into professional acting at that young of an age? Well, how, I mean, we, we all did the community theater and then, um, and then somebody suggested that I try out for the West coast production of Annie. Uh, and you know, I was, I think. 10 years old um, or nine or something when the Broadway production and, you know, of course, like in every other kid, I, I loved it. I knew all the songs. I sang all the songs. And, and so we drove to Los Angeles and I tried out for it and ended up getting in a part. Um, you got, you got Annie? Or no, you got no, I got a part. Okay. I, I, I was an orphan. I was in the ensemble. Um, 
which is, I think is really good. (laughs) Um, so at the same time we were thinking, or I guess my parents were thinking that, you know, for my dad's career as a musician, there would be more opportunity in, uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, and there was this opportunity for me and my, my parents really didn't know anything about show business. You know, they knew about, you know, the music business to a certain extent, but my dad's a traditional jazz musician. So it's not like, you know, and he made the choice to stay at home. He made the choice not to, you know, tour with, with people so he could be with his kids. Well, I was going to say, cause like when you're a touring musician, that's, a, that's like a really rough yeah. existence in a lot of ways. It really is. Especially when you're at a, I mean, when you're, I mean, it's like the widest tier really, because unless you're like a super rock band and you're on yeah. like your jet or whatever, you're on a bus yeah, and you're, or in, or in a van. Yeah. <laughs> or in a van or in a plane and you're checking in very, I mean, I know that because I've been touring the, the album that, that I did that, um, that just came out that Concord jazz released. Um, and I have three kids and I have to, you know, I, I pretty much went from a book tour to a music tour and it's exhausting. I mean, yeah. it's really at a certain point, I just kind of got burnt out and well, like the only fun thing I've heard is like the shows. Like, yeah, that's the fun part. Of yeah. it. Everything else is just like airports and hotel rooms and like, yeah, well, that's what I found was I, it was, it got to where the only time that I would really feel good was when I was performing because, because of the adrenaline and the, the, you know, I, I just, I, I'm such a performer that it, something kicks in and then I would feel like I had all of this energy and then the show would end and I would just feel like I was going to die. You know, I mean, eventually, um, it just exhausts you. And, uh, and I'm, I'm sort of on the mend from that right now. Uh, but anyway, so that's, that's kind of how I became professional because that was my first actual job where I was paid. So you're working at your, you're, you're an orphan in a West coast production of Annie. Mm -hmm. And then from there you, you get into television. Yeah. From there, I, um, I think I got an agent while I was, uh, doing that. Uh, and then really I got my first television show. I think, I, I, I think I had one day off from Annie before I went into, uh, a television show, uh, which was facts of life. I was in the first year of <laughs> facts of life. Hey. And, uh, and then from there, you know, I, I, at that point I had an agent and I was going out on auditions and then I got, um, I, I came really close to getting a part in an Alan Parker movie called shoot the moon, uh, that was with Diane Keaton. And, um, really wanted that part desperately. I, I mean, I just loved it. And I loved, um, Diane Keaton. Sure. Um, and I didn't get that part. I, I was 13 years old and they, they had to make up their mind, you know, like by 1230 or something. And they, somebody called my mom. I was in school. I remember. And I was waiting, I was going to find out when I got home from school and I came home from school and found out that I didn't get the part. So how do you react at that age? Your mom just says, honey, you didn't get <sighs> yeah. it. And you just cry in your room. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've always taken it really hard when I don't get parts you know, but it's just part of it. I mean, you just, it, you know, my kids want to act. Um, I mean, not the four-year-olds because they don't know about it, but my, uh, my nine-year-old desperately wants to do it and I don't want her to, uh, until I, I, I watched your today show interview and you were saying, I'm not going to let her until she's out of college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I feel like, you know, I, I'm sort of an, an anomaly. The fact that I'm just still here, the fact that I have an interesting life, that I'm that I'm healthy, you know, that I have a family, that um, there there's just not statistically there's not that many people like me, right? And so why would you want your children to do something where statistically they will end up, you know, either a drug addict or just you know not not have any means uh, to support themselves, you well, know? And plus, it's like you do sacrifice something for entering into a professional 
realm as a child, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you, you do lose some element of your childhood in that process. I think so. I mean, it's, it's hard because it's the only, uh, life that I know, you know, um, it's people ask me a lot, you know, what, what's it like growing up with a blind father? You know, how is that different? And I, and I think, well, how do I know? That's all I had. Right. And it was great. And he was, and he's an incredible man and we have a, a, a great relationship. I can't imagine having a different father. And in the same way, I can't imagine having a different life, um, than the one that I had or a different childhood. Um, it was certainly unconventional and, uh, and I think that I had to deal with things that I don't think kids should have to, to deal with. And, uh, like what, I mean, like were were there specific things that you look back on and go, Oh my God, like I can't believe. Well, all of the rejection. Mm -hmm. I think that most, I mean, kids need to grow up and they need to get rejected. Um, but I think that there's a, a healthy amount amount of rejection. And then there's an unhealthy amount of rejection. And I mean, I was lucky in that I became successful pretty young. Um, so, but, but anytime you become really successful at something, you have to sort of ride that wave and then know that you're going to go through that period where everyone can't stand you, you know? Um, and, and did they you, were you mean. aware of that? I mean, did, like, did anyone prep you or did you have an innate sense like, okay, this is finite and eventually the other shoe's going to drop? Or did someone pull you aside at some point when things were at their peak, maybe in like the mid eighties? Mm-hmm. And did they say, get ready? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think in some ways, yeah. I mean, I, I always knew that that was going to happen. Um, somehow, uh, I don't know how, I mean, it could have just been by noticing what happened with other people, you know, sure. I, I knew that that was probably going to happen. And, and in some ways, maybe I stressed out about it more than I needed to have stressed. You know, I, I feel like I, I, yeah, I, I was really worried about that and I'm a really sensitive person and I didn't know how I was going to be able to handle that. Well, but it's, I think, I, I mean, it sounds like you had like a, a height or like a, a really good awareness of it. And I don't know if everyone in that situation always does, or if they're willing to confront those feelings and thoughts. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think sometimes yeah. people kind of push it away or ignore yeah. it, or they drink their way through it or do whatever they yeah. do to kind of numb themselves to it. And it sounds like you kind of took the opposite tack where you were like, <laughs> focus. On, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I, I feel like it, it definitely was difficult um, it was, it was also something that I felt like I, I hadn't really, uh, pursued. I didn't pursue fame. I wasn't really interested in being famous. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't the main thing that inter- like I loved acting. I loved performing. Um, and that was really all I wanted to do. Um, so what was the big break? I mean, when you look back, I mean, Annie obviously got you started on a professional footing, but do you look at, um, your first movie? Do you look at facts of life or do you look at John Hughes movies and say, that was it? Like, when was the moment when you felt like things, when you really felt like you'd made it or you felt like things were really on a upward trajectory? Um, well, I feel like, you know, my first movie, which was a Paul Mazursky movie with, uh, John Cassavetes and Jenna Rollins. I felt like that was a really big deal. That was the movie after I got rejected for, um, for shoot the moon, they took all of the, the rejects, <laughs> the people that got close on that movie and, and auditioned them for this other movie, which was Tempest. And I did get that one. And, and I knew that it was, it was, it, it was really kind of life changing for me. And it was really the moment where I decided that I, I really wanted to do it. How much time did you get to spend like off camera with, uh, Cassavetes? 
a lot. I mean, we were we were in the the movie takes place on a Greek island, and we were in this very remote part of the Peloponnesus for uh, about two months together, oh and then we did a, a month in in Italy at Chinichita. I mean, it was it was, was an, an extraordinary, he was an amazing talker. Like I've seen interviews <laughs> with him, and like he can just, I mean, oh yeah, go. He was an incredible incredible man. Um, and the whole experience, I mean, the cast of that, the John Cassavetes and Jenna Rollins and Susan Sarandon, Raul Julia, Victoria oh Gossman. I mean, it was, it was such an incredible learning experience for me. Did um, they, did they, did you feel them mentoring you? Like, did they take you under their wing and did they kind of approach it that way? Or was it more just like you were kind of a sponge? I think that I was definitely a sponge. Um, the the only person that I I think really actively mentored me was Susan Sarandon. Um, she was like a big sister. She was I think she was thirty six years old at the time, and uh, and I was thirteen. And she was really kind of yeah, she was like a big sister, a mentor. It was it was a moment where I felt like I really couldn't talk to my mom, mm. so she was sort of like that big sister sure. mother figure. Um, and uh, yeah, so. You know that that was really the time where I decided that I was going to act, you know, more than anything, and and that's really all I wanted to do. Um, yeah, and then the John Hughes movies happened, and they kind of, and then I sort of went into this whole other realm of um, of stardom, and so, so how it kind it, of interrupted things a little bit. So how did it happen with John Hughes? Like I think I've read like bits and pieces. He saw like a headshot. Yeah. Well, that's what he told me. He he was in the middle of casting Breakfast Club locally in Chicago. And uh, over July 4th weekend, while everyone was at a party downstairs, he uh, he was sifting through this uh, pile of headshots that ICM had given him. He had just recently moved from CA to ICM. And uh, and my headshot was among um, many other ones that, that he found. And I guess there's something about it he liked and he put it up on above his computer and wrote 16 candles, um, with my image as an inspiration. And then he sent it to the studio and they fell in love with it and decided that they wanted to do that one first. So when it came time to cast the first person, I think I was just about the only person he saw. Uh, and like, that's we like just a, clicked like a, a real, like muse <laughs> yeah. thing. I yeah. Mean, like no mm-hmm. exaggeration. So, you know, in prepping, and also like uh, when he passed away, like I thought a lot about him because though like those movies mean a lot to a lot of people, yeah. including me. And I think that their longevity, like how do I put it in a way that sounds good? Like I think <laughs> I think that um, there's a real soul in those movies, mm-hmm. um, and I think that he was a great talent. And I don't think that I can look to any other run of movies about young people for young people uh you know that i I can't think of anyone else who went on a run like that like 84 85 86 i Mm -hmm. think were the years Mm -hmm. and it's like 16 candles breakfast club pretty and pink like those are touchstone movies Mm -hmm. ferris bueller's day off ferris bueller's day off i mean it goes and then some kind of wonderful which he didn't direct um nor did he direct pretty and pink but but they were definitely john hughes films he wrote them and produced them did he write vacation he did. He wrote Vacation uh, before Sixteen Candles. Yeah, and then um, Planes, Trains. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was after. So. What's it's kind of interesting about John and in that everyone always thinks about the movies that I made with him, you know, um, and Ferris Bueller. They think of him as you know just this extraordinary um, you know person who who, who wrote about uh, teenagers in a way that nobody had before or since. Um, 
and you know, even though he did all of these other kinds of films, I think when people think about John, they think about those movies. And it's interesting because he did way more movies that were not about teenagers than ones about teenagers. Right. But those were the ones that really, really resonated with people. Did you have a sense when you were doing those movies, like when you're on the set of 16 Candles, where you're like, this is going to be huge. You had, did you have any idea? Did you mm-hmm. feel it? No. I mean, I thought it was going to be good. Um, I thought it was going to be, I mean, it was certainly a lot of fun. Um, the best script that I that I read of his, I thought was breakfast club. And I thought that I thought that breakfast club was really just an extraordinary script. It was so much fun to read. I mean, all his stuff was fun to read, but, but that one, especially, I thought that it was really special. So I I thought, I didn't know if it was going to do well, but I thought that it was going to be extraordinary in some way. I remember the biggest fight in my household with my older sister wanting to go see that movie. (laughs) My mom was like, you can't because they smoked a joint. (laughs) Right. I know. You know, I wanted to show that movie the other day to, um, to Matilda. Uh, and she's, she's only not, well, she's going to be 10. Right. And, you know, I always thought that I would show it to her when she was a teenager. But at this point, you know, she's dealing with the, you know, everything happens earlier now. Right. And the issues that happen, you know, the issues that are explored in those movies, I think, um, you know, she's dealing with it. Plus all of her friends have seen the movie. I mean, she's practically the only one in her class who hasn't seen the breakfast club. So I told her the other day that she could see it. And when I told Ponyo, my husband, <laughs> He, he was really upset about it. And he said, I, I, I really don't feel comfortable with that. And, and I said, but, but why? And, and it, you know, I said, she's, she's watched all of friends. I mean, she's pretty much learned about sex from watching friends. I mean, in this sort of weird kind of, sure. she does, she thinks she knows everything about sex, but she knows all, she, it's basically all innuendo. She right. knows a certain amount, you know, but I feel like there's, the value of watching a movie like Breakfast Club is so much more than, you know, a, a scene with us smoking pot. And what's interesting is that in that movie that a lot of people don't realize is that not all of us are smoking pot. In fact, the person who gives the, the pot to everyone isn't, uh, which I think in itself is an interesting comment. You know, he has the drugs that he gives to people, but he doesn't do it himself. Really? Mm-hmm. I'd have to rewatch. I'd yeah. Remember, yeah. A lot of people don't realize so that. Wait, Bender has the weed and then and he never else- smokes. He watches everyone else sort of lose control, but he, you know, he is really about control. So, and also, um, Ali Sheedy's character doesn't smoke either. Um, Allison. So when I told Matilda that we could watch it after I, you know, because Ponyo finally, you know, said, I mean, he didn't feel great about it, but he said, okay, uh, I'll, 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 you know, I'll let you take the lead on this one. And I said, okay, well, Matilda, if we watch it, the caveat is we have to talk about it. You can't just watch it and then not talk to me. You know, we have to talk about these, you know, and she said, okay, you know, so so, it's gotta be kind of crazy to have your mom be in this movie (laughs) as a teenager yeah, and then to be approaching that part of your life and, you know, and it's a great movie. So it's like, and it's got to be kind of cool for you to get to show her that, or is it, was it weird or? I think it is. I mean, I thought it was really cool when I showed her pretty in pink because, uh, you know, once again, she was dealing with these issues and I was actually thinking to myself, what can I show her? You know, she was doing this volleyball camp and there were some mean girls that were older and, and, you know, she was struggling and, and feeling hurt. And Matilda is incredibly artistic and very, um, you know, she's a bit of an outlier, um, a total artist 
Uh, but she really wants to fit in at the same time. And, and, and I thought, what can I show her that's going to help guide her? And, you know, with a strong female protagonist, who's different, who, you know, and I'm thinking all these things in my head. And then of course I realized, oh, I made that movie and I can show her that. And, and so we watched it together and it was, it was, it was the only time that I really almost felt like I was seeing the movie the way that other people have seen it right because i never had that you know everybody else had all these movies that they grew up with sure but because i was in them i didn't have the same experience and that was the closest that i got to it was experiencing it through matilda's eyes yeah i mean i got yeah i can imagine that would be like pretty much the only way it's like through your child yeah it's yeah, like Christmas. So do you get it now? Do you get it why everyone's <laughs> a freak about these movies? I, yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Definitely. I mean, I knew that they were they were special and I I did have the experience a little bit in reading them because I feel like I visualized everything. He was so he was such a good writer, such a good screenwriter. Well, I wanted to talk to you about that. Like, you know, cuz you know, he obviously directed um what 16 Candles and Breakfast and Club. And Breakfast Club. But he did not direct Pretty in Pink. Yeah. But I, you know, in a lot of the eulogies and in a lot of like the media that happened around the time of his passing, I learned a lot more about him than I had previously known. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about him was like how uh, prolific he Mm -hmm. was as a screenwriter and how fast. Oh, yeah. Like he would crank out one of these these movies in like a weekend with like loud music and caffeine and, you know. Oh, yeah. And uh, and a lot of tobacco. He smoked a lot. Um, He really, he really couldn't rewrite he really hated to to rewrite. Um, in in fact, when when we did Breakfast Club, um, when when I read the script and just fell in love with it and agreed to be a part of it, by the time we actually got to to film it, because he pretty much offered it to me and to Anthony Michael Hall just just at the end of Sixteen Candles, which I think ended in the summer, and then we started filming Breakfast Club in February, um, in the middle of winter. Uh, but the script that we were supposed to shoot, we had two weeks rehearsal and it it was so different and, and really not as good. Um, there was all the stuff that was added in, you know, there was like a nude teacher that was swimming and, you know, yeah, yeah. There was, there was another character actually that was in it and, and the principal spying on her. I mean, there was all the stuff that was added and I think it came from like notes from the studio and, you know, and so he kept writing and the more he wrote the, the less interesting it got until he called me, um, pretty soon, like about a week before we were still in rehearsal and he said, Hey, are you excited? And and I said, yeah, but it's, he said, what, what, what? And I said, well, it's different. It's just really a lot different. Well, what do you mean? I said, well, there, there's this, you know, the new teacher wasn't in, you know, there was the, you know, I, I don't know. There's just a lot of stuff that's different. And, you know, I mean, I guess it's okay. And the next day he brought in a stack of breakfast club scripts and he let us all just go through and, there were certain things that were there, you know, I think there was something that Allie found, you know, what happened to this, or there was this speech or this monologue. And we kind of, and, and, and he let everybody kind of take stuff from these other scripts and kind of, kind of get the script back to what it originally was. Right. But he was very collaborative that way. Um, I mean, at least when I worked with him, he was incredibly collaborative. Well, and he had like, I mean, he had an unusually deft touch with young people. Yeah. Like, and, and I should also say that you guys are pretty precocious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like that was, it seemed like that was necessary. I mean, you kind of had to meet him halfway, but like not everybody can do that. He had mm-hmm. an unusual level of access to like the 
teenage psyche yeah. or whatever. And he that. did in, in a way that I, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't quite believe it when I met him. He was, he was, uh, 36 and I was, um, well, I was 15 and, or no, I think he was 34 actually. Anyway, um, I couldn't believe that somebody that was a grown up, that was an adult could get how I felt at that time, you know, and, and, and I, I really thought that I would remember all of that stuff forever but it all seems very distant to me now. I can't I mean, the closest. Anything. Yeah, I know. I know. Right. <laughs> the closest I feel to, to teenage issues really is about my daughter. Who's going to become a teenager. You know, I mean, she's becoming, I mean, in October, she's officially going to be a tween. Uh, I know. And, you know, and so I feel like all of my experience about in teenager is really focused through her. Because I don't remember any. It's it's all kind of blurry. But John, for some reason, was more in touch with that than anything else. He I mean, he really was still, in many ways, a teenager. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I think some people go through that experience, and well, I guess it's pretty rare. But they they internalize it. Yeah. He must have internalized those experiences really deeply, and he had access to them in ways that were unique. So. And and he was also really sensitive, which I. Uh, which I wrote about. I don't know if you read the op-ed piece that I wrote. Um, I did. And it, it was interesting. Um, a couple things stand out. Like one uh, was the, the, what did you say? He had like a supernatural ability to hold grudges, yeah. <laughs> you know, cause yeah. like temperamentally you think about yeah. somebody who's got that much access to like, you know, the adolescent psyche mm-hmm. or whatever. And he was fun loving and he has, he was very musical, mm-hmm. you know, he had great like taste in music and, yeah. you know, he just really captured his time, yeah. you know, and he had it by the tail for like, Mm-hmm. I think a period of time is, I don't think any artist can hope to have it by the tail for very long, mm-hmm. you know, but some people get lucky and, and have yeah. those kind of windows of time. But, um, like temperamentally, what was he like? And then like, what about these grudges, you know? Well, he was just really incredibly sensitive. And, and I think the fact that he did hold on to grudges was perhaps one of the reasons why he remembered so much that happened in those teen years, because I don't think he ever really got over it. I think, I think that John in some way, I mean, this is totally me being a pop psychologist, you know, because I, I, you know, I'm, and I'm not a psychologist, but in, in my opinion, I, I feel like John kind of suffered from some sort of post-traumatic stress syndrome in that he really felt what was happening all the time. And every time he would think about anything that happened to him, he would feel it again. Do you know what I mean? Sure, in, yeah. in the way that people do kind of suffer, you know, when post-traumatic stress, you know, is usually referred to for people that have gone through, you know, something much more horrible than adolescence, adolescence, <laughs> but you know, but did he but, have a particularly difficult adolescence? No, no, I don't think he did. I mean, I think, you know, I think that he was, he was not necessarily, you know, he was, he was kind of the geek and he married the, the popular girl um, so what, he kind of won in that way. But what I mean is that, you know, if you talk about post-traumatic stress, it's, it's that people are suffering because they, they feel it's, it's like their brain isn't able to separate out that the fact that this is in the past. So the past becomes the present all the time. And I think that in some ways that, that that's sort of how John lived. All of that stuff was like real all the time. And that's what kind of enabled him to write about stuff with with so much authenticity is because he just felt it all the time he's and and 
eventually, I mean, there was, there was a lot of, I knew when I worked with him, how much, how many grudges he held on to. And I never really imagined that I would be somebody that like, like people in the industry or would he talk about people in the past or was it just like, uh, everybody, 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 I think, I I think, I feel like he felt hurt by everyone. Hmm. And so, okay. One of the things about your op-ed that I, I found interesting um, or another thing that, that struck a chord was you said something to the effect of, I think you didn't really feel like you could grow up until you kind of moved away from that particular creative partnership, which makes sense to me. Like you can't keep making those movies and grow up. I mean, at some point you have yeah. to kind of go off on your own road. Yeah. Um, but then the other thing is that at the time of his passing, it had been like 20 years since you and Anthony Michael Hall had spoken with him. Mm-hmm. And so like in my mind, I'm thinking like those guys hang out all the time. I know. I know. <laughs> Everybody thinks that. Yeah. No, we, we went on with our lives and, and, uh, you know, was there bad blood paths. or anything? Like, was he, was he angry that you went on? Like- no, we, we made peace. You know, when I moved to Paris, um, I was, I was really on this huge Francois Truffaut kick and watching, you know, all these movies with Jean-Pierre Leo. And, and, and I felt I really sort of connected in a way that I, I felt like I was like John's Jean-Pierre Leo. Like, I, you know, me and Anthony Michael Hall, we were both sort of avatars um, for, you know, for, for John's uh, uh, experience. And, uh, and so I wrote a letter to him and he sent me this really enormous bouquet of flowers to my apartment. And so I really felt like we made a certain kind of piece, but I, I did hope that we would sort of work together again and, and actually be able to talk. That would have been great. That would have been amazing. So it didn't happen and it was really, um, really sad, but should we talk about my writing at some point? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. We will. I'm getting there. I'm getting there, but I feel like people want to know this stuff. Sure. Um, so I want to get to Paris and I want to get to the transition, um, to writing, Mm -hmm. you know, because you had this really hot period, uh, in the eighties, obviously where you did all these big movies that have, um, you know, become kind of iconic mm-hmm. things. And then you go to Paris and you act in movies over there. Mm-hmm. You're doing plays. Mm-hmm. At what point do you start to say to yourself, I'm going to write? Well, like I said, I was really writing all the time. Um, I was mostly short fiction, um, some screenplays. John actually was very encouraging to me uh, at that time. He always said, you know, you need to be writing. You need to be thinking about that. Like he wanted me, but I think when he thought about me writing, I think he really thought that I was going to be a screenwriter, which I would s- still like to do, but I don't think he ever thought in terms of, of fiction. Mm. Uh, but it was really something that I was, I was drawn to. So I, I just kept writing. It was just something that I, that I did, but I never thought anything was good enough to publish. Um, and which, I didn't know if which, I would ever again, get to that place. Which, shows admirable restraint. I think people sometimes think, like, this is some great stuff. You know, like, one of the hardest things yeah. is to know when to move forward and yeah. to know when to, to just keep it in the drawer. Yeah. Well, I did that for years. And, um, you know, and I and I also feel like I didn't work at it as because I had all of, you know, I had a career that was already, um, you know, I, I had already chosen my career so, and, and whenever I think you make money at something, it's very hard to give something else the same importance, well, particularly sure. after you start to have kids and, you know, that, that sort of defines you in a way. And it's very, very hard to say, to call yourself 
anything when you're not actually making money, which is really one of the tricky things about being a writer. Tell me about it. Yeah. You know, um, and, and I wish it wasn't that way, but, but it is. And, and I went through that too, where I, I really felt like it was, it was something that I, I couldn't really call myself a writer, even though I was writing because I hadn't you know published anything and I hadn't made any money at it. Um, but, but it was also something that I really didn't imagine. I, I, if I ever thought about publishing something, well, like I said, I, I did think about doing something one day, maybe under a pen name. Um, and then when I got more serious about it, I, I thought I was only going to write nonfiction, which is what my first book was. Um, and then through the process of writing that book, I realized what I was, the, the, the moments that I, I really felt like it, it took flight were the moments when I was telling a story. Um, even if it was a story that happened, there was something about recreating the scene and talking about character and, and feelings and all of that stuff. It, it was really the part that, that was most interesting to me. And, and then I realized, okay, I, I, I don't really want to write nonfiction. I want to write fiction. Um, and that idea was just terrifying to me. Um, did, did the acting work that you had done, do you, do you think that it prepared you uh, or feeds the writing work in a really mm-hmm. useful way. I mean, it has to have some sort of symbiosis. Right? Yeah, I think I think every um, everything that I do, you know, I mean, the, the three main things that I do are, are act and write and sing, and they all feed each other. You know, I, th- I feel like my acting definitely helps with character, and um, and the acting also helps with singing because I I break down a song and I think about who 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 is this that's singing? Why are they singing this? Who are they singing it to? And so that's character work. Uh, and then the, the music background, I think really helps the writing. I write in a very musical way. Right. Um, and then also the character, I mean, they all just help each other, you know? So it's, it's hard for me to imagine not doing all, all of those things. Well, it's funny that it's funny to hear you say that about music, because, uh, when I think about vocalists that I really like, they, they don't always, you know, in rock music or whatever, like they don't always have the best voices, mm-hmm. but they can sell the song, Yeah. which is like a performance thing. Yeah. You know, it's like, and it's a point of view and understanding it. And yeah. I don't know. There's something very. Yeah. I think there's a there's a really direct line between acting and selling yeah. a song. I, I absolutely agree. And those are the song the singers that I'm you know most interested in and find myself listening to are the ones that don't have perfect voices but can can really uh, convey an, an emotion right. and really make you hear the lyrics. Um, so yeah. Um, but I do feel like I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, I want to, I want to, I mean, I, I want to actually. Talk oh, I know what I was going to, sorry. Go for it. I know what I was going to tell you. Um, in terms of the differences between, cause people do ask me, you know, the difference between acting and, and singing and writing. Uh, and I do feel like acting and, and, and singing are very similar in that it involves uh, performance and, and the immediacy of it. You know, you're either in front of an audience or even when you're on a film set, you have the crew. I mean, there's always somebody who's reacting to you in, in the, in the moment and you don't have that with writing. And that was something that was incredibly hard for me. Incredibly difficult. Is it harder? Like, do you think that writing, sitting down to write a novel is harder than acting well in a movie or making an album? Like is, you know, is writing fiction? Well, for me. 
For me, it is. Uh, you know, for other people, maybe not. I mean, there's other people who can't get in front of an audience and, and sing, and, and I can, you know. But there's other people who have been writing, you know, actively writing longer than I have or, or better than me, and I'm sure that, you know, it's, it's easier for them. But for the most part, I, I feel like every writer that I know, certainly the good ones, <laughs> don't necessarily love the act of writing. Well, I mean, I've talked to a hundred, you know, almost 200 people now and it's like, you know, almost everybody struggles. Oh, everyone. Yeah. I, I think the only writer that I know that I talked to who loved the, or at least she says, I mean, there's no reason not to believe her was uh, Maria Semple. Did you ever interview her, her for this? Yeah, yeah, I did. did she tell you how much she loves <laughs> sitting she had, down? And- <laughs> yeah, she had fun. I mean, she was like, and she went, you know, did these great research trips. I think she went down to like the Antarctica and like, you know, we talked well, about Well, you know, the, the research, yeah, that's totally different than the actual act of writing. I mean, I could research all day long. Right. I mean, I love that side of it. Um, it's, it's the sitting down and getting out the 500 words. A day, which is what I do when I'm on a you know a writing schedule. I was going to say, how did like did you at some point you had to say if you're making the transition from like I'm writing and I'm I have this impulse to like I'm actually writing a book. Yeah. you have to get into some sort of serious discipline. Yeah, well that that was mine. I do write fast, um, you know, uh, much much faster, for instance, than uh, Pontio, my husband. You know, he's an incredibly slow writer and I'm I'm an incredibly fast writer, but I rewrite a lot. But in order to do it, I just have to, I have to get it out really fast. Plus you have three kids. (laughs) That helps. That kind of does force your hand a little bit. It does. It does. Um, But he he was the one that, that gave me the, the schedule actually, because I thought, how am I going to do this? How am I going? You know, it just seems just impossible. And he said 500 words a day, um, or two hours, whichever comes first. Um, and that's, that's what I did. And usually once I started, because I do write fast, it would end up being more than 500 words. And some days, you know, I would just squeak by, but you writing in like in the morning, do you have like a time of day that you would do it? Or it, it really just- depends. Okay. It, it depends on, you know, just on life. I, I try to do it the same time. Usually when my kids are in school, um, it's hard when they're out of school. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah. Uh, and it's impossible to write at home too, because if they even have an inkling, I mean, sometimes we'll sneak in the back door and try to not let them know that we're there if we're writing at home. But once they find out it's just done, you know, so we always have to find somewhere to write and I don't have an office. So, you know, we, I, I wrote both of my books, um, at a shared writing space, um, but then a lot of it was written on sets if I was working. Um, I heard that I read somewhere that you were writing some of your book on your phone, which <laughs> yeah. I, I have just started doing. And like, I've started to write cause I'll go for a walk in the morning yeah. just to like get some exercise and like get my head going or whatever. Yeah. And I'm walking yeah. and like typing notes on my phone and it's sort of great. It is. You know, I, I did write part of it on the phone, but, um, it sort of got exaggerated where somebody said, I heard you wrote your novel on an iPhone, which was not true. What did happen was I was on a set and I was kind of stranded and they were shooting one side of the scene. And I, and I, I had one line at the end, like I had to just say, okay, fine. Or I had some like nothing line, but they, they decided to shoot the, the scene that I was not the, the side rather, cause it, there was a pool, a swimming pool between us. They decided to shoot that first, which meant that I had to sit there all day while they shot everybody. 
and I didn't have anything to do. Like they could have shot me out basically because I wasn't really needed and I could have flown back to, it was in Canada. I could have flown back to LA, but that's what happens. And so I was there and I, the only thing I had was my phone and I was in the middle. I was right in the middle of writing the book. I mean, I pretty much was halfway, I think. Um, and I started taking notes for the story that I wanted to write, which ended up actually being the title story of the book, which is um, When It Happens to You. And I started thinking of ideas for the story that I wanted to write when I got back to LA, but I was just on the set for so long that I kept writing notes and writing notes and writing notes. And then by the time I got on the airplane, I put all the notes into the computer and rearranged them and added stuff. And, and by the time that I got home, I gave the the story to Ponio, um, who was the only person who read everything as I was writing. And he said, you've, you've just written your title story. This is the best thing that you've written so well, you far. Know, you never know where it's going to come from or when it's going to happen. And I think there's something about the informality of writing on a phone mm-hmm. or like writing in a moment where you're not necessarily saying like, this is my mm-hmm. writing time where I'm going to write a novel. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And then it just it flows a little bit yeah. better maybe. I think so. I feel like writing is, is constantly... Um, playing mind games with yourself, you know, and, and one of them is kind of tricking yourself into not having that pressure of sitting there, you know, and writing right. or writing well, or getting that, that really fantastic, um, you know, thousand words or 500 words or whatever. Um, because it's all of that, that I think really keeps people from, from writing because, their mind is just constantly telling them, Oh, you can't do this. You can't do this. You're no good. You're, you know, and it's like, you really have to turn off that side of that, that part of your brain. I mean, that part of your brain is very useful or I find it very useful in terms of editing and rewriting. But when you're actually creating on the blank page, that, that voice is very unhelpful. Um, so I think things like writing when you're sitting on a set or when you're stranded on the subway or, you know, in a noisy cafe or, whatever that that really kind of helps me mm. to to write but then there's a lot of people that have specific ideas about how to write you know there's people that think you're not a real writer unless you write on a typewriter oh, i mean there's please. not that many people that think that anymore but <laughs> you know or or you're not a real writer unless you write by unless you write by hand or you're not a real writer unless you have this office that you know i, I don't know there's all these ideas that people have about writing and for me it's like you write because you have to and you write when you can. And for me, it's, it's very sporadic. It's just when I can get it in. And then what about taking the book once you had a manuscript to publication? Like, what was that part of it? Like, did you just have to go out and start knocking on doors for literary agents? Or did the work that you had done previously, you know, did you have connections? Or- no, I, I actually, um, I, I sold my first book uh, to HarperCollins and, um, and when I did that contract, they wanted it to be a two book contract. Um, but the, the contract was worded in such a way that I could have written anything. (laughs) Basically. I think what they expected was the first book was going to be a monster hit. And then I would write, you know, a follow up and the same kind of book. Um, but I realized that I, that's not what I wanted to do, that I wanted to write fiction. and Which is a ballsy choice, I think. Y- y- thank you. Um, I think so. But it was the only choice. It was, I couldn't, I couldn't write anything other than the book that I wanted to write. I, I couldn't have written a follow-up to the other book because it was just not what was interesting to me. Um, and I did go back to them and say, look, I know this is probably not what you're expecting. 
and um, I'm happy to take this elsewhere if you, if you're not you know if you don't want to do it. And I really meant it. Um, in fact, I really kind of lobbied for them to change the imprint in the house because I felt like it books, which was perfect for uh, getting the pretty back, because um, it's you know very pop, sure. you know pop culture house and right. you know really heavy on illustrations and and um, images and everything. I thought this is not going to it doesn't belong here, but they really wanted it. And Cal Morgan um, at that time had taken over for Carrie Kenya, who had started it. And, you know, he's Jess Walters' um, editor. Sure, yeah. and, you know, he's at Harper um, Books and uh, and very literary. And he really, really wanted it. And I, and I have to say they were incredibly supportive of me. I never got a whiff of disappointment from them about it. Um, and, uh, so did you, did you find the publishing world? I mean, I know you said earlier that the like the literary world was, uh, has been very warm and receptive, mm-hmm. but like, did you notice differences between like, say movie and television world, the kinds of people, like, w- was there a distinction? Could you be like, Oh my God, this is so, these are different waters that I'm swimming in because they're, you know, <laughs> yeah, they're a lot eight. smarter, <laughs> a lot more well-read. <laughs> yeah. Cause you know, there are agents on the TV and film side, there are yeah. agents on the book side, there are editors and then there's studio people. Yeah. So it's a little bit of the same dynamic, but yeah. I think publishing is a gentleman's business still to a large degree. I, I feel like it is. I mean, there's certainly, uh, there's, there are a lot of frustrating aspects to publishing. Um, you know, they're not immune to the whole popularity Thing and you know everything is is still driven by numbers you know and how much your last book made and there's there's all of those those real business um, issues but I think just the world and being around the the people that I've that I've met um, that I've come into contact with I just I really feel like what can I say it just it feels like my tribe yeah like I feel like I can sit and and talk about books and writing that I love and, 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 and engage in a way that I never felt like I could do in Hollywood, you know, and I'm still acting, I'm still doing that, but, but it, it's true that a lot of people don't read here or if they read, it's because, Oh, this, this hot book hasn't come out yet. And can I option it? And can I turn this into a movie? I don't really feel like there are a lot of people that I'm going to offend people, obviously, but the, probably the people that are listening to this podcast are, are, you know, literary people who know what I'm talking about. And there is a literary scene in Los Angeles here, yeah. you know, but, but I feel like, um, you know, it's just not as, as prevalent. It's not as big as, as the Hollywood scene. Um, but I really love to talk about, I would rather talk about writing and writers that I like and books that I like than talk about, you know, box office and who's going to get this movie and who's going to get that movie and, you know, who's going to get an Oscar for, for, you know, it's just, it's just not as, it's never been as interesting to me. Hmm. And so what about the next thing? Are you actively working on something? Do you have time? Cause you just put you put an album out. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm touring the album and, you know, I'm still doing the, the odd bit for, um, for my book, which just came out in paperback. Um, and I really, this really, would be, this would be the odd bit or at least. Part of the odd bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, this, um, is, uh, so anyway, what I'm working on is, I'm working on a, a a new novel, but I haven't really had been able to get into a writing schedule um, because of touring and mothering and, um, you know, so that that's what I'm hoping to do this year is to be able to carve out 
some time to actually dig in because I know, I know what the book is and I know who the characters are and I know where it takes place, but I just, I literally just tend to not have the time to do it. And then I also read, uh, in an interview where you were talking, or at least there was some preliminary talk about adapting your own work for the screen. Is that possibly happening? You know, I was thinking about it and, and I was really interested and I started it. Um, but then I really felt I feel like when you when you start a work, you know, you you have to be so interested by by what you're writing about, by the themes and by the characters. Um, you know, for me to continue would be like I would I would still be in that that book for another however long it takes to write the screenplay and get the money and cast it and direct it and and I didn't there there's other themes that I'm interested in exploring. You have to have like, yeah, it takes a lot of energy and you've I mean, already gone yeah. through the whole cycle of writing yeah, it. Which touring. is hard enough, you know? So I was talking to my friend, um, uh, Sheila Hetty. Have you ever sure, talked talk to, to her. her? Yeah. Love Sheila Hetty. Um, and she's, she's amazing. She's so clear headed and sort of for, you know, I mean, we're kind of new, newish friends, but of anybody that I met, I, th- I feel like she really sees the big picture and she's so calm. And, and so we were talking about that and she said, I think that you should write your new book. And then in two, three years, if you still want to, um, adapt your other book, then do it then, but don't do it now. And, uh, and when, and she said it was so much authority, you know, I said, <laughs> and sometimes, yes, sometimes Sheila. you just want somebody to tell you what to do. <laughs> yes. And she's really good at that in, in the most loving, um, uh, in the most loving way. I mean, she's not at all pushy or dictatorial. She's just very clear headed. Um, and she's maybe done I such call interesting her up and ask work her for advice on my life. You, you know? know, maybe you should, <laughs> maybe she would, you know, she, she, there's so much that she can do. I, I find, I, I was just in Toronto, um, actually with, with the album touring, um, the album. And I, I hooked up with Sheila and her friend, Margo, who's sure. in the book and Margo's husband, Misha, who did the book with, um, with Sheila, which I don't know if you've read or not yeah, called yeah, yeah. chairs or with a, Oh no, no, no. I thought you were talking about how should a person be? No, no. This is a book that she wrote with her friend. Uh, and originally she wanted to write this book about her friend because she was just so interested by him, but she found that writing about her friend or imagining what Misha would say if he was in the situation wasn't as interesting as, as what, Misha actually would say. And since he lives two blocks away, (laughs) she said, Hey, can we do this book together? And you just talk and I'll type. And, and that's what the book is. And it's such a great book. I mean, I just loved it. And I was so inspired by this whole group of people. I came home and I announced to to Ponyo that I want to move to Toronto. (laughs) (laughs) It's great in the summer. (laughs) Oh yeah, it was, it was great. I mean, I just had such a great time, but you know, that it is something that I, that I miss a little bit. Um, you know, being in Hollywood is, is finding that, um, that sort of community, those people that are, that do things outside of, of, you know, movie making. Sure. Um, you know, and I, and I don't find that when I lived in New York, I found that, you know, yeah, there were some people that were acting and directing and writing and doing television, but there were you know, people doing theater and there's people doing, you know, finance and architecture and, you know, all kinds of different stuff. And, and, um, yeah, it's a little different here. It's a little harder to find. Not that it isn't there, but yeah, it's like, you got to work at it. I get it. 
you have to work at it. And also when you have kids and you, you're all tied up with their schedule, if it's not in your immediate, um, you know, your, your hood, right. Um, you know, I mean, I never come over here cause I live on the West side and of it's course. just, you know, I can't, I don't have that time during the day to spend in the car in traffic. Right. You know, so I end up just sort of staying where I'm at, but anyway, well, it's been uh, super fun talking with you, and I appreciate you enduring all the, like some of the usual <laughs> questions. But I've, I'm just I'm so pleased to get a chance to meet you and to have you on the program, and I wish you all the best of luck with everything. Thank you that you have going. Thank you so much. Okay, you guys, there you go. That's it. That's the program. That is Molly Ringwald. Go get her novel. It's called When It Happens to You. It is available now in paperback from It Books and in print of Harper Collins. You can find her online at IamMollyRingwald.com where you can learn about all the different projects she has going on. You can follow her on Facebook, and she's also on the Twitter, where her handle is at Molly Ringwald. Thanks once again to Squarespace, today's sponsor. If you need a cost-friendly, beautifully designed, easy-to-manage website, look no further. Squarespace uh, is an all-in-one platform. They make it fast and easy for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. If you want to get a free trial and 10% off, just go to squarespace.com. Please do this. And when you do it, use the offer code OTHER8. Once again, the offer code is OTHER8. Okay? Uh, thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app. It's the official app of this podcast, and it is available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. And you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that if you haven't done so already. The app itself is free. Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, the Farmer Ted picture. I'm thinking I might put it up on the show's website so you guys can see it and mock it. You know, I, I kind of get the resemblance. It's it's there. It's not 100% perfect, not by any stretch. But, you know, I think it had more to do with my delivery as a young person. I think I had kind of a similar, like, rapid-fire delivery, which uh, might make sense considering what you've heard from me on this program. Please remember that Joseph Heller flew 60 combat missions in World War II and that Frank Lloyd Wright died in Phoenix, Arizona. That's all for now. Thanks for listening, as always. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Molly Ringwald. Go get her book. And uh, I will be back again in uh, just a few days with another conversation with another writerly human being. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? (laughs) 